0: Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on SiriusXM XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Uh, we're in a strange, strange, strange period of time, which I am both um, disconcerted, a little disturbed at the same time, optimistic and excited because out of chaos uh, comes possibilities. Out of manure can grow some amazing things. And I'm here to grow some amazing things. Today is also the birthday of James Baldwin, who was born on this day in 1924 in New York, James Baldwin. Um, So I want to start off with a clip from James Baldwin. Uh, He gave a speech at Cambridge. I think William F. Buckley um, held an event there. I think it was the 1960s, 1960s. Yeah, it was black and white. And James Baldwin is holding court with the Brits, you know. And uh, in, in the speech, he said this. Let's play it.
1: When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I. That I was a savage about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those are the only books there were. Everyone else seemed to agree. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem downtown, the world agrees. What you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy say, you're not, and you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true, that you belong where white people have put you. It is only since the Second World War that there's been a counter image in the world. And that image has not come about through any legislation on the part of any American government but through the fact that Africa was suddenly on the stage of the world and Africans had to be dealt with in a way they'd never been dealt with before. This gave an American Negro for the first time a sense of himself beyond a savage or a clown. It has created and will create a great many conundrums. One of the great things that the white world does not know but I think I do know is that black people are just like everybody else. One has used the myth of negro and the myth of color to pretend and to assume that you are dealing essentially with something exotic, bizarre and practically according to human laws unknown. Alas, it is not true. We are also mercenaries, dictators, Mm -hmm. murderers, liars if we are human too, hmm. what is crucial here is that unless we can manage to establish some kind of dialogue between those people whom I pretend have paid for the American dream and those other people who have not achieved it, we will be in terrible trouble.
0: I want to sit in that for a second because I I have a question for everyone. How big is your vision? How big is your vision for yourself? How far can you see yourself in the world around you? What do you see? I'm constantly reminded that too many of us don't see very, too, too many of us are myopic. Too many of us can only see what we can see every day. We can't imagine beyond what we experience. Too many of us are victims of our own lack of vision. And the word says my people will perish for lack of vision. I want no one to perish. So I need you to think a little bigger. I had a conversation today. Y'all know I'm juggling many things. Um so I have a lot of meetings, which I absolutely hate. I hate meetings. I hate meetings, uh, but I know that they're necessary sometimes. And I think I also operate in my own headspace thinking that people just know how I think about things or they know what to do. I don't have to tell people things that I don't have to share with them what I'm thinking, but I absolutely do need to do that. So I have these meetings that I absolutely hate to have. And I realized today that I absolutely need to have these meetings. Why? Because if people are left to follow their own vision, we won't get very far. So I had to ask a couple of questions of my team today. Right. I had to ask some questions. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to share, you know, a little bit of what was talked about. As you know, uh, there was conversations about partnering with this and partnering with that. And yesterday we, we had an amazing conversation with Don Calloway and Omi Bell that spilled out over onto uh, into Nubia and onto YouTube. We did an after show uh, because we weren't finished talking. And it was in the same space, you know, as we attempt to build something as if nothing has ever existed before. First of all, that's the first problem. When James Baldwin says, you know, um, he didn't know that his people had a history because all he was taught was that, you know, he comes from a savage race. If you if you go to school, if you went to school at any period of time, you would hear about Phyllis Wheatley talking about or writing about the first uh, so-called black poet in this country in the 1700s, writing about a dark continent that she uh, came from as a child, as a baby in the hold of a ship. How could she know how dark a continent it was when she came of age here and was literally uh, paraded around the country and around the world as, a, as an anomaly, right? Someone literate, as if the people from whence she came didn't invent writing, because they did. Paper. Papyrus writing was invented by the very continent that she came from. People putting words into action. Amen Ra. People writing that 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 uh, was not uh, a parlor trick. It was it was endemic. It was part of the DNA of the continent that we all come from. So I just I find it interesting and also disturbing at the same time that the erasure of history is so prevalent. Uh, and that there's such a movement shout out to those uh, women that claim to be for liberty, but are for bondage, those mothers for liberty, they're for bondage because it's only in your lack of knowledge that you stay enslaved. Right? So they're not for liberty at all. They're mothers for bondage. They need to change their name. And anybody that is, uh, you know, calling for this book or that book to be, re- be removed from a library, any governor like Suckabee Sanders and, and Arkansas who wants to, um, Criminalize librarians having books <laughs> available uh, because she deems them as inappropriate. Not that these children, if you feed them the right things, can come to their own conclusions about what is right, is r- right and wrong. And how about you raise your children? <laughs> how about you open the doors so that they can have conversations with you, so they can develop into full human beings? You can't shield them from this world. They have access to the internet, unless you're, you know, going to have one of them caress type communities, which are very prevalent. Coming up, Uh, but I was thinking about today because I'm like, partnerships are good with you know, quote unquote, mainstream entities. But why can't we build our own? I'm being patient, you know. I I'm I'm, I put together a ten year plan. Like I'm willing to sit in this for ten years until we can develop something. Because I remember a time when there was no. I I remember when Twitter came. I remember it like it was yesterday when Twitter was a thing. Because I was at at Hunter college. And I remember, you know, making it part of, you know, my assignments, you know, to have my students develop, you know, Twitter pages to I was teaching a publishing class at the time and to promote books. And, you know, we were playing around with that and Facebook. And I remember cause it's within in the last two decades that there wasn't one before then. And there've been things that have been here and not here, you know, the vine is not here. And, and my space is not here. Black planet is here but not the same that it was before. There have been so many things that were huge. Blockbuster was huge. It was huge. And now it's gone because technology and vision and somebody with an idea kicked the can forward because that's what we do as human beings. We don't stay dragging our knuckles and dragging people by the hair. We evolve, right? We should evolve. We should grow. We should grow. I want us to grow, but to grow, you got to see, you got to see a thing to be a thing. So representation matters, exposing yourself to different things, traveling, seeing that the world is tiny at the same time vast, that we all are very similar. I learned that at 18, spending the summer in Bermuda, uh, my roommates, parents, her dad owned a a store called um, Roosters. My dad owned a Hunter corner store in Newark. They were very similar men. Her mom was a, a school teacher, brilliant woman. My mom was brilliant as well. And we had the same mom, same dad. <laughs> She's in a whole other country. She's drinking Kool-Aid, but she added ginger beer to her Kool-Aid. You know, in East Orange, we had Kool-Aid. They went bowling. I was in a bowling league in East Orange. She was, she was bowling. We went bowling. And I'm like, I'm on this tropical island. I'm not going to the beach. I'm hanging out playing cards <laughs> and going bowling. I could do that in Jersey. But you know what? The same people. Same people. People are people. So why should it be you and I should get along so awfully? Why? Why? So I was thinking about this today. Um, first of all, lack of vision. We need to see bigger. We need to see ourselves, whatever it is that you want to do 10 years from now, 50 years from now. If you haven't sat down and mapped out the next 50 years, even if you don't plan on being here in terms of what you want to see happen. But that starts today with the seeds being planted, the foundation being poured, the corner store, st- stones being put into place. That starts today. Whatever it is you want to see or be. We give up too quickly, we sell out so easily because we're not used to sitting in something long enough for it to take hold. And even stocks, I look at um, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. People call them brilliant. No, they're patient and they're damn near 100 years old. (laughs) So they've lived long enough to watch the thing that people always say you know you just stay in something long enough and more importantly they built something 60 years ago that is now worth a billion times more than what it was worth 60 years ago and Warren Buffett still lives in Nebraska in the same house that he's raised his children in he didn't feel the need to go out and do anything more but that's a man that has what you call you know uh patience which many of us do not. And I get it, you know, poverty uh, alters your brain. Lack, a sense of lack. And this is what I want to also say. Just because you don't have doesn't mean you're not abundant. You know, like if you only reason why you are in lack is because you see yourself in lack. Lack is a temporary, is a temporary condition. It's not your permanent position. It is temporary. Temporary. Light and momentary. And it is until you decide that this is not who I am, which is why when you call up and you ask me how you doing, I'm awesome. I am awesome. I am abundant. I will say all of those things out of my mouth because that is exactly what I would, no matter what is going on in my day. And let me tell you, I have bad days. I have days when things do not go the way I want them to. And I try to talk myself. I don't try. I do. I talk myself into what is the lesson here or these things are just forcing me. Like today, something forced me into doing something that I wouldn't have done unless the people (laughs) didn't push me to do it. And now other things are growing as a result. I make calls that I wouldn't have made. Complacency is, is death. Being okay and comfortable in your lack is death. Being broke or poor, temporary. Unless you make that your condition. 866-801-8255. So I wanted to start off first of all paying homage, paying honor to James Baldwin today, being his ninety-ninth birthday. But as you know, you know, I watch no cable news anymore. Just completely done. Not a single one, not a single MS or CN or definitely not the F word. I don't mess around with that too much uh, in my in my regular speech, but I'm definitely not going to watch. So I watch CNBC, right? If I'm watching anything on TV that's not trash television, <laughs> if it's not, not Love Island UK or, you know, <laughs> Queen's Men or whatever, 5011 other things that I watch on television, which you hear about on Fridays, on Foolishness Fridays, I'm watching CNBC. So today, Becky Quick who is part of what they call the squawk box, the squawk box. And I would love to get Mr. Sorkin on Smith at some point. I know we've reached out to him uh, because I think he's fascinating and billions is coming back so we can bring him on. Maybe I should reach out to Brian. Uh, Never mind. Let me let me move on. But Becky Quick interviewed a man whose name I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to buy his book. So a man wrote a book about Michael Milken who, uh, if you're old enough to remember, he was one of the first people to go to jail for insider trading. Actually, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, fined $600 million. This is before Bernie Madoff, before, before an Enron. that was Michael Milken. Um, and, uh, and I remember this case, even as a young person, because when he came out of jail, he looked so much better. I was like, whatever prison he went to, he got into shape. I think he beat cancer. Like he he came out. It was like a rest. It was country club type of prison that he went to. Because, you know, when you do that kind of crime, they're not sending you in, to jail with Tiny and Pookie and them. No, you going to jail with the, with the rich people. And it's basically a vacation. So I remember that. Like it was yesterday, but I'm sure he would have wanted his years back that he went out, but he was indicted for racketeering and securities fraud. And in many ways, you know, when you think about greed is good and that Wall Street character played by Michael Douglas, this was the prototype, Michael Milken. And so Becky Quick is interviewing this man. And I, and I, I like the squawk box, uh, not just because Joe is at my gym, the, uh, the big headed guy on there. He's at my gym a lot. Nobody even pays him any mind, especially not me. I'm like, boo. But... Um, When I go to the gym, because, you know, I quit the gym for a month and I'm trying to get back in it. But so she's interviewing this guy today and I'm going to play the clip and Smith, leave my mic open before you play it, though. I I want you guys to listen to, first of all, how she interviews him. okay? because I don't see this on those other channels, you know, either they're trying to play gotcha. But she's like these people on CNBC, they know their stuff, you know, like except for Kramer. Y'all can at me. I don't I, I feel like he's marketing, but these folk actually are in. They know their stuff. They you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm I, I watch CNBC because I'm, I'm learning about companies like Sirius XM. At one point, our CEO was on doing a, her annual report out at something. And, you know, if you listen to these things, you get some insight into where companies are going. Some of you work for these companies and you should know what they're planning to do, because if it doesn't include you, then guess what? You're expendable. So she's interviewing this guy. Play it.
2: Michael is an historical figure, probably the most uh, effective and important financier of our time. And is still written about and nothing has ever been written about him by somebody who was there, who knows the truth about exactly what happened. What did he do and what didn't he do? And I think it's time for the truth to be told.
3: And your version of the truth is what?
2: (laughs) Well, you can say my version of the truth. It is the well, truth. It's, it's I was a truth.
3: It's it's a one person account. It doesn't uh, it's not a journalistic action that went after all of this. Come but on, you, pause, you Smith, pause, 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 pause,
0: pause. Right. Somebody come on here talking about some any subject and they don't come with facts. Is your opinion? You just wrote. You just wrote a two hundred page love letter to Michael Milken with no re- refutation in it, no copies, no notations. There's no 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 notes notations at the end that we can you know verify what you're saying. Becky was like, "Nah, this is just your opinion." I love that. Thank you, Miss Quick.
3: Go ahead, continue. What What is the truth as you see it? <laughs>
2: The truth is that Mike came under the radar of a very aggressive prosecutor back in the mid 1980s. He was extremely successful. Uh, He was a person that certainly could help a prosecutor's career, especially political career. And uh, he became part of an investigation and prosecutors have tremendous power. And one of the things I try to point out in the book is that if that power is used aggressively, it could happen to anybody. A prosecutor decides who to investigate, how to investigate them, Can use a grand jury to indict a person. And at that point in the court of public opinion, I think, as we all know, a person is not innocent until proven guilty. And what I try to explain is exactly what happened here, how it happened and why it happened.
3: Hey, hey, Richard, let's just be clear that that prosecutor was Rudy Giuliani, who used this situation and others to go on and become mayor of New York City. I completely understand what you're saying about aggressive prosecutors. And anybody who's watched a lot of these prosecutors who use this to go on can see what you're talking about in some situations like this. I just want to say, look, Michael Milken, no question saw things differently and revolutionized what happened with the high-yield debt market. He realized before anybody else that the market wasn't acting efficiently and that high-yield debt, junk bonds, as they were called at the time, high-yield debt would often be a better play, that you would be more likely to get paid back than you would be for some of the high-rated debt in, in some of those situations. So no question... He did things that that unleashed the entrepreneurial spirit when it comes to this country. Milken was responsible for people like Ted Turner going on to create the industry he looked into. He was responsible for Steve Wynn being able to come on and take the casino magnet, and those are all fantastic things that he unleashed. But it also unleashed some some bad news for society, too. I mean, if you look at some of the corporate raiders who were able to do things and go after companies that they would have never been able to go after with the amount of equity that they had or the amount of capital that they had at those points, that unleashed some really bad things, too. And just in full disclosure, I should tell pause, you... Pause before, that-
0: this, pa- before this, Pause. So, first of all, extremely prepared. Becky Quick knows her stuff. So she's like, you know, I'm going to give you that this man saw some things in the market and as as she's talking I'm also thinking as a person that lives in this country and in a, and as a global citizen that a lot of the things that he did um undermined our ability to feed people and clothe people and house people right so because it all became it about market share and bottom lines and making as much as you can. So if you can short a company, great. If you can ride a company into the ground, as we've seen with, you know, GameStop or whatever, and, but use the market to, to build, you can play with, with this thing. And who loses? The little people. So Becky's about to share a personal story. So she takes you with the facts. His slaps this man around a little bit, gives him, some props. Yes. Michael Milken did this, this and this. And he gave Win, Steve Wynn <laughs> the go ahead. I don't know if we, you know, can say yay to that. Ted Turner, who, you know, it, might be a nice philanthropist. I don't know if he's good for America or Americans. We're going to talk about this in a second. Uh, but go ahead. Let her share her
3: story. Smith, Yvonne Boski, because of what Michael Milken unleashed, was able to go after Natoma's oil, which is where my father worked at the time. Everybody there lost their job because of what he did, because he went in and took over the assets that were worth more than the company was at that point. We lost our house. So I just being full disclosure, I have some questions about all of this. No question. Michael Milken has done amazing things with charity, one and a half billion dollars. But why didn't you talk to people like Giuliani in this piece, too, who, by the way, I think has become friends with Michael Milken, Hmm. helped him get a pardon from President Trump because Milken reached out to him when he had prostate cancer. I think he looked back at things a little differently, too. Nasty. Nasty. Yes. Why didn't you reach
0: out to Giuliani? He prosecuted him and then turned around, because this is what happened, uh, got a pardon from Donald Trump February 18, 2020 for Michael Milken. So his record is clean. He got pardoned. It's as if it never happened. And Giuliani helped that happen, even though Giuliani used this case to become mayor of New York. The much the way Chris Christie used his prosecutorial career to become governor of New Jersey. Yeah, people are always playing games and we are the pieces on the board. But Becky said something that made me sit up when she talked about her dad losing his job and her family losing their home. And it made me think about how we don't, as human beings, think about the suffering of other people. We only think about our own tribe. And I'm saying this across the board. There are a lot of people who have no compassion for folk coming into this country from other countries uh, who, who have melanin. There are people whose family came to this country, uh, but they'll say we came here the right way as if there's a a right way to escape uh, near death or to escape death or escape abject poverty. There's a right way. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, So because you went through during a time, maybe a period when it was easy to come in and now, now, you know, the last few years, people building a wall and things, you know, you now don't want people here or, or, you know, maybe you're black and you see, you know, your, your neighborhood being overrun with these people, you know, you're, you know, and they're coming in and they're, you know, they're making it, you know, they're they're setting up businesses in your neighborhood, but you, you never did you know but you're mad because somebody's coming here that we don't have compassion for the conditions of others in that moment when becky quick was sharing about her dad losing his job because of somebody like a michael milken bosky i think his name was sure you know running a company into the ground so that regular ass people no longer have a job and it was all a shell game for them it's all pieces on a board for them but for becky quick it meant losing her home and she felt that now, I'm sure she would look at her her career now and see that she's, you know, not that person that didn't have a home, whose dad, you know, fell on hard times, whose family fell on hard times because she's now on CNBC being very successful, probably making millions of dollars. And that's great. But I think about how many Becky Quicks didn't come up out of a situation. How many people didn't come up out of a situation? And what is our responsibility as human beings to have compassion for one another? And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this when I first started the show back in 2014 and it was primarily because I just finished a book with Keith Ellison whose cousin was a lawyer for Owsley Kentucky and he said you know my cousin who's a black man could run for county sheriff or whatever or mayor and win because he has helped so many people in this county and and he was saying that all people want is to be seen and to you know not be ignored but also to matter right we all want to matter when Keith Ellison said that to me and he said, did you know, Karen, the four poorest counties in America are predominantly white. And at that time it was four counties in Kentucky, four of the the bottom 10, the poorest counties in the United States of America were four of them were in Kentucky, including Owsley. And they were all ninety ninety four 94 to 99% white. The poorest people in this country, the people who have the, like the worst, but, I never had to consider that as a black person in America. And I'm be quite frank with you. I really didn't care because that's not my problem. But if everybody feels like it's not my problem, then when do we ever have a consensus? Because the real problem are the Ivan Boskis and the Michael Milkins. The real problem are the Donald Trumps and the people like Rudy Giuliani who pimp off of other people's situations, and they pit people against each other. The Ron DeSantis's pit people against each other while they go and steal the booty—not the buttocks, but the booty, like pirates' booty, right? While they ruined, <laughs> you know, the economy and play games. You know, those PPP loans went to some very wealthy people. People bought boats and houses, and some very rich people got a lot of those loans during. The pandemic, and I don't see a lot of them going to jail. There's a lot of tax evasion in this in this country. I just finished watching a TV show that I'm gonna talk about a movie on on Friday about the Beanie Babies. You 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 think about it, even in a Barbie movie, you know, the, the founder of Barbie, she, you know, didn't pay all her taxes and you know, hit some money in different places and they talk about it in the movie. But I think about how wealthy people, the 1%, the the tech bros and all of the folk that have our information and control our movement are actually the problem. But we sitting here fighting about bathrooms and books and reproductive rights. It's a weird thing, but it's not weird. It's by design. Because as long as we are focused on one another, then they just keep getting richer and richer. And they're not spreading the wealth. It's not trickling down. It never was. So I just wanted to spend a little time thinking and talking about the poor the poor in this country because as long as you're poor and in lack as long as you are poor you have limited vision poverty breeds a certain kind of mentality that keeps you both desperate and looking for solutions outside of yourself and so we have a nation of people majority of people who are 38 million people not the majority of people in the United States 38 million people live below the poverty line and most of those people are in the south Most of those people are in states run by Republicans. Most of those people are in counties that are predominantly white. Most of the people on welfare are white. But all we see is poverty and black, right? So that also lets us, like James Baldwin, believe that there's nothing in our community but blight and poverty and gang violence and shooting because all we hear is Chicago when Anchorage, Alaska is way more dangerous, way more violent than Chicago. But that's all we hear, right? Because the narrative feeds something. It feeds something in us, if we're being honest, as well. We eat what is being fed, which is why I challenge everybody to watch what you eat this Wellness Wednesday. Watch what you eat. Watch what you consume.